Well, if there's any segment of society that understands the need for qualified leaders, it's the military. Consider, from the moment a new batch of undisciplined, wide-eyed recruits steps off the bus, hard-nosed sergeants begin identifying leaders, and they make their choices with uncompromising efficiency. There's no drill sergeant that worries about a, a private's feelings, seniority, politics, or popularity, because when the bullets start flying and the bombs go off, unqualified leaders get people killed. Qualified leaders accomplish their mission. It's just really as simple as that. Consider, consider the eternal stakes involved in Christian ministry. A healthy church must have qualified leaders because qualified leaders accomplish the mission that God has set us out to accomplish. So goes the leadership of a church. So goes the church. And leadership, as you know, is certainly influence. But what kind of influence should a leader have in a church? To what end are, is he leading the church to? What are the biblical par- what's the biblical paradigm for church leadership? Is the job description for a Christian leader the same as the CEO's manual in your work? Does character count for anything? Does competency count for anything? Should one guy run the show? How should a leader be selected? just on uber-giftedness, just on charisma, just on status that he has in a church or in the world, an Enneagram test or a number. I'm number seven. I don't know. I guess that made the mark. That was supposed to... Okay, we're getting there. We're getting there. We're learning each other. Is it just an entrepreneurial spirit? Is it just someone who... um, can think strategically about the church. There's a lot of good characteristics in that, but is that what is required of a leader in the church? I don't have to tell you this. There is a tremendous need in the church today for clarity, for clarity about what leadership should look like in a local church. In 2013, John Piper wrote a book primarily to pastors and leaders in a church, and it was entitled, Brothers, We Are Not Professionals. And he spent time talking about the differences in leadership in the church and the leadership in secular society. There's certainly some similarities, but there's certainly some, different, some differences. You know, I've spent the last 10 or so years uh, spending a lot of time with young pastors. And many of those pastors have spent a lot of time training and, and for the pastor and trying to lead. But I've sat down with many of them that really didn't get it right or they weren't trained right as it relates to what their primary responsibility is in shepherding a flock and caring for people and teaching them the word of God. I've watched from a distance churches who implode and their people are, go through pain and suffering because the church got leadership wrong. See, the Apostle Paul thinks leadership is a pretty big deal. You're going to see that in the text this morning when, he, when we come to Titus chapter 1. Um, normally, in a personal letter, what Paul does is he gives a greeting like we went through last week, and then he gives an encouragement to that person like he does with Timothy. He doesn't do that here. He goes straight for the jugular, and he says, this is what's not right, and it's leadership. Paul thinks it's important. The apostle Peter thinks it's important as well. When you get to 1 Peter chapter 5, you see Peter exhorting the elders and say, I exhort you, shepherd the flock of God under your care. You know, Jesus thought it was important as well. 
You remember when the disciples uh, were spending time, who's going to be the greatest? When Jesus dies on a cross, who's going to be the greatest? And they start ranking themselves. And Jesus says, you're to be a servant leader. You're not supposed to be like the Gentiles who lord leadership over, but you're supposed to be a what? A servant. A servant leader. Turn with me to Titus chapter 1. We will be uh, looking at verses 5 through 9 this morning. We saw in verses 1 through 4 a theme. Really a theme that works all the way through the book of Titus. That theme is that, uh, that we should be pursuing truth and godliness. Truth and godliness. And you're going to see it in the description of an elder, the leader of a church, the leaders of a church today. You're going to see the need for truth and the need for godliness as you look at what an elder is in this text. So let me read Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 for us this morning. Paul says this to Titus. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what, was, what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I've directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. A lot of list here. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also able to rebuke those who contradict it. What is in the elder? The, the Bible uses a number of terms. I just want to give you kind of a summary of this text, and then we're going to hone in on some different things in this text. What is an elder? Uh, there's really three words or so in Scripture uh, for the idea of, 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 lead, of the leader of a church, a lead pastor elder. Elder connotes the quality of a man's life. Elder means mature. The quality of a man's life, who he is. The word You'll see that word in this text. You'll also see the word in this text. Do you notice there? Overseer. An overseer is someone who's really, this is the function or the responsibility of an elder. His responsibility. This is what an elder does. And then in 1 Peter 5 and Acts chapter 20, you see pastor, shepherd. It speaks to the means or his heart, what he does. I don't think you see in scripture kind of a, a top-down approach to bishop, uh, elder, pastor. You often see that in churches, but I think what the scripture does is it uses these different words to describe different functions of the Christian leader. And so these words um, are synonymous with one another in scripture. I'm a pastor elder in our church. I ought to be eldering, overseeing, and shepherding the church. And so I think it's one, one title with different functions, if you will. That's what an elder of a church. I think the word elder is the word I'll use mostly this morning, but you see that word used most often in scripture, in scripture of the leader of a church, the leaders of a church. You also see something else in this text that's really important, and it's in verse 5. It, it, it says that Paul is instructing Titus to find elders, plural, not just one. See, elder leadership in a church is plural. There's more than one. There's more than me. I would tell you at Christ Community Church Magnolia, it is my heart that we have plural eldership here. I have no desire, and it is not my intention, to be one man running this church. 
I need other elders alongside of me to help me lead this church. I need a plurality of leaders. I want a plurality of leaders to walk with me, to hold me accountable and me accountable to them. I want team ministry is, is by far the better option anyway, just practically speaking, where you have more men able to teach, more men able to care for the flock and the needs of the flock. So as your pastor, I want you to know up front, as your new pastor, I want you to know up front, I have no desire to be the, only, to be the guy in the spotlight to be the guy that's the only guy that's speaking into things. You know, and I went to Russia about 12 years ago, and Putin, I think 12 years, it's been longer than that. I'm getting old. Um, but Putin wasn't in power at that time. He had stepped down, but guess what? He was still in power. In the church, there ought not be a scenario where the pastor's really running the show and everyone that are elders alongside of him are just kind of brother-in-lawing this thing. no. There's a plurality of elders, and I want you to know that's my heart for this church, that there are more than one men uh, leading this church and caring for this church. Now, certainly there's a place in 1 Timothy 3 where it says there's double honor for someone who preaches and teaches, but I need men in my life to hold me accountable, and they need me in their life to shepherd the flock of God. And I would also say this about church leadership. Um, I think I'm not only accountable to God, and particularly Jesus as the chief elder of this church. Chief, Jesus is the chief elder, and I'm, I'm accountable to him. I'm also accountable to other elders under, uh, under shepherds, but I'm also accountable to you. If you're part of the membership of this church, I, I see in scripture that I'm also accountable to you as a pastor, and so I want to encourage you in that. I also want you to observe from this passage that Paul's focus isn't just on the structure itself of, of polity, of putting elders into place, Okay, a lot of times when we come to a text like this or other texts that, that you see polity coming into place, like the structure of elder leadership, his point is that elders ought to be examples to the flock. So his point, it's important to have organization in a church. It's very important to have structure in a church. But the point of that structure and the point of that organization is that you have examples for the flock to follow. And so these men who are elders in a church ought to be people who are in the trenches of ministry. There are servants who are caring for you and teaching you. That is what I would say overall about the role of elders. Let's look real specific about this text. There's a lot of details in this text. What do we look for in elders? Not only what do we look for, but what do we need to develop in our church in both men and women? Not only what do we look for and develop but what, are the, what truths are here that all of us can apply to our lives? And so if you're a lady in here or you're a kid or you say, hey, I'm not qualified to be an elder, so I'm just going to tune out this morning. Man, there are biblical principles in this text for all over the place for you um, to apply to your life. And so I, I pray that you will stay with us here. The first thing I think you see in verse 5 is this. We need to look for a track record of disciple making. We need to look for, when we look for an elder, we need to look for a track record of disciple making and shepherding. You could add that. And shepherding. Look at verse 5. What you see here is there's a problem in Crete. And the problem is um, that the church has planted. Here's what's happened. In Acts chapter 2, what you see in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes and people from all kinds of places come to know Jesus, what you see in Acts 2 is that there are Cretans there. There are Cretans there who come to faith and they bring the gospel, we think, back to the island of Crete. 
And we think that Paul likely came to the island of Crete and planted churches. It's hard for us to find uh, some of those details. There's a lot of ink been spilt over that. But what you see is that people have come to faith and they come back and there's churches planted. But let me tell you what hasn't happened. Remember Great Commission a few weeks ago? Make disciples, mature disciples, multiply disciples. The maturing part hasn't happened. The multiplying part hasn't happened. And so Paul doesn't waste any time with Titus, his protege, his soldier. And he says, look, I'm not going to encourage you. I'm just going to tell you, here's what you need to do in Crete. You need to go to all the different churches in Crete, and you need to appoint elders. There's a problem. There's a vacuum of leadership. See, what happens when there's a vacuum of leadership, things move from order to chaos. Anybody a green thumb in here? Or want to be green thumb? That's me, right? You think about the garden that you planted. You spent a lot of time in the beginning planting it and getting the right uh, things planted and soil. If you leave that garden alone for any amount of time, it turns to chaos. There are weeds that come up all over the place, and this is what's happened in Crete. So he calls Titus to put what remained in order. Do you see that in verse 5? Why don't you look at your Bible here? This is important. The word order right there is the word we get for ortho. Put back into order. Set it in order. Orthodontists. Everybody loves orthodontists. If you have kids, you hate orthodontists because you have to spend like $7,000 to take their teeth, who your spouse, you know, genetically gave those teeth to your kid, right? Um, You have to spend like seven grand to get it set right, to get their teeth set right. And think about all that goes into that. You ha- there's pain involved if you've had braces. I've had them twice. There's pain involved in getting braces. There's a cost to braces that you have to get. There's maintenance to it too, isn't there? You have to go back again and again and again. Did anybody old school have like the headgear? Oh, those are brutal. Um, and so there's maintenance and cost and messiness. A few years ago, a couple years ago, we were at Chick-fil-A and my daughter fell. She was playing in the kids' area, and she fell, and she broke her arm in a really rough way. We went to urgent care, and they bent her arm. You know that feeling as a parent um, when you can't do anything for your kid, and they're in pain? And we go to urgent care, and they bend her arm all over the place, and, and she is in excruciating pain, and they come to the conclusion, hey, we can't take care of this. You need to go to the orthopedic. I'm like, well, thanks for telling me. And so we go to the orthopedic, and the orthopedic takes more x-rays, more money, And he sets her arm right in a cast. And it was messy. And there was maintenance. And there was cost. Can I tell you something this morning? There is a cost to discipleship. It takes time. It takes maintenance. It is messy. And so when you read in verse 5, and if I'm casually reading verse 5, what I see is that, okay, Paul tells Titus to go put elders in place and appoint them. So you can imagine in your head, like, okay, that's quick. He goes to this city, to this city, to this city, and he comes to one city and he goes, okay, tall, good looking, he must be an elder, a CEO, wealthy, a really nice guy, he's going to be an elder, and you just keep moving. Like, this is a short trip. I don't think that's what you see in the book of Titus. As a matter of fact, Titus ends up leaving after a while because this takes time to vet and Uh, put elders, appoint elders into place. And so what I think you see is him taking other two men and bringing them into these scenarios and training. I see a lot of work 
when it says, put what remained in order and appoint elders. That is a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of work. Discipleship hadn't happened. Paul says to Titus, the first thing that you need to do is put is to work and vet and go through the mess of making disciples so that you can put elders in place and then you can leave and they can multiply. That is what you see in Scripture. So the first thing that I would say that I look at when I look for elders in a church, who are the men in the church that are already eldering, that are already shepherding, that are disciple makers? I think that's one of the first things that you see here. You know, I have a friend... um, who's a pastor, and a while back he got fired from a job, and I knew the situation well enough to know that he wasn't just bitter when he said this, or or frustrated. He said, you know, they fired me because I wasn't the catalytic leader that they wanted. You know what? They should have fired me, but they shouldn't have fired me for that. They should have fired me because I didn't develop elder quality men who understood that, that that a pastor elder needs to shepherd the flock and teach the flock. It was a pretty profound statement. I should have been fired for that. You know, there's a litmus test here. Is the person already shepherding? Is he discipling? And more broadly than that, so I won't just talk to the men here, broadly than that, whether you're in leadership in any formal capacity or not, whether you aspire to that or not, the New Testament calls us to be a people who help other people grow and make disciples, right? That's the call. That's, the, that's why we're sent out to do. And so I would encourage you, are you growing? Are you investing in anyone? Is anybody investing in you? You know, shepherding and discipling is what elders do, but Paul's going to press into their business a little bit more. He's going to look at the character of a person. He's going to press in on who they are. Look at verses 6 through 8 there. Verses 6 through 8. Here's what you see. There's a summary characteristics in, characteristic in verse 6. Do you see it? Look down at your text. It says, this man should be above reproach. Above reproach is, is the absence of grounds of legitimate accusation. There's nothing in which you can hang, there's nothing, in, nothing you can hang on this man to say that he's not qualified. You know, people, who the, people in which you can't hang things on to say, oh, he's just intemperate, he's angry, He's not really that faithful to his wife. He has wandering eyes. People free of accusation are worthy, I promise you, of your imitation. They're worthy of example. And this is what Paul is getting at for Titus in this passage. Now, perfection is very much not in view here. We understand that none of us are perfect under-shepherds or under-shepherds. They're not the chief shepherd. There ought to be a lot of grace for that. But there is a certain trajectory of this man's life. A life marked by, look at it, there's some positive things in verse 7 and 8, and there's some negative things. And the negative things is my life gripped by these different things. There's three examples. Do you see them? Three examples. A faithful husband, an effective father, and a godly man. So verse 6, faithful husband, Effective father, godly man. Let me break those down just a little bit. A faithful husband. Literally, the word, the idea here is a one-woman man. A one-woman man. Um, some people have kind of gone to the polygamy thing here. I don't think in Roman culture that was a thing. And all of Scripture says polygamy is wrong, so I don't think it's just that. 
Um, some people have used that phrase um, in Scripture and that verse to mean uh, that someone who's unmarried couldn't serve as an elder or somebody who's widowed couldn't serve as an elder. Um, people use it as well and say someone who's been divorced in any case, in any time, uh, cannot be an elder. I don't hold that particular view. There's a lot of people who do. I think in certain situations, in certain circumstances, if uh, a woman, for example, has um, left a husband and deserted a husband, um, I think there is possibility for that. I think it's case by case. Um, but there's certainly a trajectory here in a man's life as it relates to his wife, as it relates um, to his relationship uh, with his wife. Does a man have eyes for his wife? Or does he, his eye, do his eyes wander? Is he faithful to her? Is he pursuing his wife? There's a stewardship piece in view. Like 1 Timothy 3 says it this way, how can you manage or be a steward, or an overseer um, in the household of God if you can't do that in your home? That's what Paul will say in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So a faithful husband you know, it's interesting in the culture, in the, in the Cretan culture, and in the Roman culture of that day, it was pretty brutal when it came to marriage and fidelity. Um, there were, you can go and read this, but statements like, only the ugly person was faithful to their spouse. That's, that's, that was the norm in this day. Not only that, um, you can read, go back and read history, and you see that um, people would say in this culture, People would say that their wife was for childbearing, but harlots and concubines were for pleasure. So Paul is calling Titus in Crete to say, no, 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 no. That's not how it works in the church. That's not how God sees marriage. This is how God sees marriage. Men, let me tell you something. Faithfulness to your wife matters to God. Amen? It matters to God. It also says that he has to be an effective father. Um, here in this text, it says that a in the ESV, it says believing child, right? I think a better rendering as I just look at the Greek and I look at 1 Timothy 3 is a faithful child. He's a faithful child, that he's not unruly or she's not unruly. The idea here is that a, a father is instructing their kids and their kids have a level of respect for them, that they're a steward, that they're overseeing their family well. This is where Paul starts with eldering. It starts in the home. It starts with husband. It starts with father, an effective father. And maybe just a parenting note here. And you're called to love your kids. Kids in here, listen to this too. It's okay. Um, you, you need to love your kids. You need to shepherd your kids. You need to give them opportunity. But, but when you parent your kids, man, you're not to be at this stage in their life. If they're in your home, they're not supposed to be your bestie. They're just not. Okay, you're the parent. You parent them. And sometimes that means, as this text says, that a parent has to instruct, that a parent has to even discipline their child. You know, we live in Texas and we do a lot of yes sirs and yes ma'ams and no ma'ams and no sirs. And we, we tend to put that in this Texas box or the Southern box, but I'm telling you, that's a good practice. Whether you live in Jersey, you live here, that your kids respect authority, whether it's your authority or their teacher's authority or their coach's authority. That's our job as well. So we need to love our kids, but part of loving our kids is to instruct them and care for them. I promise if you let your kids run in an unruly way, they're gonna be, the little minions are become big minions later on. 
and you don't want that. There's a lot of people who have raised kids in here, and there's a lot of young families in here that you can, uh, young families would encourage you to lean on those who have been down the track just a little further than you. And so I'd encourage you, I mean, this is a big requirement for a leader in a church. A man can be disqualified based on this. You know, I went to school, I went to seminary with about 15 to 20 young men like, at that time like myself, and we were idealistic about being in ministry. And one sad thing that I've seen is, is there's, there's about a handful of those guys that are still in ministry. Some of those guys are, are not in ministry because they felt like God took them on a different path. But there's a lot of those guys that are in ministry that are not in ministry anymore because either they neglected their wife and their kids they were unfaithful, or their wife said, I've had enough. You don't pay any attention to me. The only thing you pay attention to is the church and the ministry of the church. Your primary ministry, whether you want to be an elder or your mom or not, your primary ministry in life is to your spouse and to your kids who need Jesus. So I want to encourage you in that. So we're looking for a lifestyle that's above reproach. And then you get to verse 7 and 8, and you see all these different characteristics. Look at them there. And I'll just walk through it. Verse 7 and 8. Um, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. If you're in a church and you're a, one of many elders, I always want you to think about how greedy for gain would destroy an elder team. You're not self-willed. But, so those are in the negative. Now, again, I want to say this because this is important. There's likely a place in the history of this church, if you look at your current elders or you even look at me and go, hey, he, he was this. He was not these things. Now, if that sin grips me, then you should be concerned. If that sin grips John or Scott or Brent or whoever else is an elder here, then you should be concerned that you should bring that to attention. Um, so, it's, so it's not perfection, but it certainly is a trajectory and then look at this, verse 8, it says, but be hospitable. You know, hospitality is the way that you have love with skin on it. You can show people that you love them by being hospitable, by inviting them into your home, which requires sacrifice and time and care. So an elder is hospitable. He's a lover of good. He's self-controlled. He's upright, holy, and disciplined. But there's something else here that you see something else here that you see that's not just character, but it's competency. Do you see it in verse 9? Look at verse 9. And actually, before we get there, I, I just want to pay attention to this list. Lists are hard to preach, by the way. I want you to pay attention to this list. Do you see, in the world's eyes, do you see anything on that list from verse 6 through 8 that is flashy or spectacular or gets a a Twitter hit, hit. Do you, is there anything there according to the world? But as a Christian, you know what I see about that list? I see someone who is led by the Spirit. You know, Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit. Think about Galatians, fruit of the Spirit text, and this one. You see a lot of commonality. This is a life marked by the Spirit doing a work. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. That's spectacular, Right? As a Christian, that's spectacular. That's flashy. It depends on how you see it. 
The challenge is, is the tendency is to look at gifts or look at flash the way the world looks at it and go, that guy better be an elder. But the Bible may not be flashy like that, but it certainly is flashy in the sense of godliness. Amen? That's what you see here. And so do you see that? First Peter 5 says, this is all leading to really to one place. This, an elder ought to be an example to the flock. And that's what was missing in Crete. Who's the example to the flock? Next week, we're going to learn about the false teachers who were flashy, but brought a different gospel. This is why the church is having problems. I want to say this too. Uh, this, is, this is an easy application to men um, to live above reproach. And functionally, the idea here, men, is to, to model Christ, to be an example to your to your family and to your church, and that applies to all of us. Ladies, you may be sitting there going, okay, when are you going to get to me? Um, if you look at chapter 2 of Titus, you know what you see, the, the beginning of chapter 2, verses 2 through about 4 or 5? You see a parallel. You see a parallel in a description of a godly woman who is having influence as an example to younger women in the church. And you see the godliness of this woman and that she is teaching and instructing as a godly woman, younger women. She's setting an example. And so this is what you see, and this is what we ought to be striving for as well. It's an incredibly important role, just as important for the women of our church to model Christ to other women, to teach other women. Titus 2 says older women should teach younger women, that they should model godliness to one another. And so I would encourage you in that, ladies of the church, Elders are, for example, elders are also to be competent in something. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 said, he, says, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So godliness, verses 5 through 8, truth, verse 9. That's the theme of the book. There's a competency here that's required, and it's required in two ways. It's required in two ways. Look for the ability and willingness to teach in an elder. It's required in two ways, both equipping the church. That could be from the pulpit. That could be a class. Um, that could be one-on-one -on -one to equip the church in truth. Not only to equip the church in truth, but to refute false teaching. You know, it's interesting when you compare the different qualifications of elder and deacon. This is the only distinction, really, that you see, the ability to teach and sound doctrine. So there is a competency here. There's an ability, but it's rooted in something, right? It's rooted in knowing and believing the Word of God and studying the Word. I, I, you, elders in a church have to know the Word so well that when XYZ happens in our culture, they're able to say on the Facebook post, this isn't true, this is true. Let me encourage you in that. And so, those are the difference. But I don't want you to think a couple of things. I don't want you to think you have to be Wayne Gr the Wayne Grudem type theologian to be an elder. That's not true. You also don't have to be John Piper, who, who's a great communicator of God's word. I don't think that's in view either. Um, I think the setting doesn't have to be the pulpit, even though elders ought to be able to teach. It doesn't have to be the pulpit. It may be one-on-one. -on -one. It, one, it may be a small group. It may be a class. It's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what you see is when he makes reference to the elder who can preach and teach, the implication there is that there are some elders that don't preach and teach, that don't come up on Sunday morning and preach like this. 
but they're able. And so there certainly is the ability and willingness to teach, but don't think Wayne Grudem, don't think John Piper, Matt Chandler, it doesn't have to be that. But the man needs to know the word. He needs to know the Bible. The importance of teaching, you can't mistake it on almost every page of the Bible. You need to know God's word. You need to know truth. About, gosh, 15 years ago, I'd just gotten out of seminary, and I, I remember going to my first uh, youth conference. Those are fun. Uh, youth conference. And there was this guy that had started a church in Michigan. And, um, man, this guy uh, started a little church, and he started teaching. This is his first sermon series, Leviticus. That's crazy. Guess what? The church grew by leaps and bounds. This guy was an expositor for God's word. He was faithful to the text. He was orthodox. And I remember going to that conference, and he was there. And I was all goo-goo over this guy. He's a little nerdy guy in Michigan, but he had these videos. And we, I would watch these videos, and man, that's really cool. It's really cool. I'm trained, right? I went to seminary. I'm trained. And then a few years later, I'm watching these videos, and I'm thinking about, you know, showing my kids these videos, my youth kids at church, and I showed them some of them. And, but there were a few of them that were like, there's something not quite right about that, but I'm not sure what it is. I can't pick up. I'm not going to show them that one, but I'm going to show them that one, that one, and that one. And then a few years later, he came out with a number of different books, and it got weirder and weirder. And he started saying some really weird things, and then he comes out with a book called Love Wins. And he basically punted the orthodox view of hell, the God, and just in the end, love wins and nobody goes to hell. That's a guy who started 15 years ago as someone who's orthodox, who taught the word, who went to a decent seminary. I went to a different one, so he went to the decent one. Um, <laughs> right? But he taught the word and people followed him. He had one of the fastest growing churches in America, but over time, it wasn't quick, but over time, he went from orthodox to neo-orthodox to completely out the door. He tours with Oprah now and talks about spirituality. Rob Bell, heard of his name? There were people in our church, and I was a young pastor, but there were people in our church for many of those years, all the way up to you know, a few years ago, that swore by him and said, yeah, but this is true. Listen, elders in a church need to be able to see error and be able to go, that's not quite right, and here's why. So you have to both equip and you have to re rebuke and correct things that are out there. Now, there's some churches that that's all they do. They're just, they just cluck their tongues at people who do it different than them, and that's not what I'm talking about. Man, we live in a culture today, there's all kinds of isms and spasms out there, and we tend to read this and go, well, that would have been obvious to them. Judea, the Judaizers, and that would have been obvious to them. It wouldn't have been. No more than it's obvious to us, the false teaching that's all around us, and there is. The prosperity gospel is an example of that. You know, there's a lot of guys, and I pray for them, that have um, gone through what they, they would call a deconversion, where they were influential Christian people who were influencing people. But the problem with the deconversions that are happening right now, it's not like, pray for me, I, I just don't believe anymore. It's, hey, follow me. And people in churches are going, hey, I looked up to that guy. I kissed dating goodbye. All right, that was a great book that I read, and this guy is punning the faith. What do I do with that? That shatters my faith, and an elder needs to be able, in that kind of scenario, step in and go, hey, here's what truth is. To exhort, 
and equip and coach people and raise people up and to refute things that are wrong. That is just as important in our day today as it, is, as it was back then. This is the role of an elder. Look for the ability and willingness to teach. Um, Thursday night, it was really fun. Uh, I came to my first men's night gathering, and it was really neat to see Brent teaching a group of seven or eight guys around a table, Romans. And for us to have discussion, that's what an elder does. And so we had questions, and different things came up, and he was able to answer those. That's what it means to be an elder, to shepherd the flock, to care for the flock, and also to teach the flock. Elders are for doctrine. Elders are for direction. Elders are for discipleship. His nickname was the Round Mound of Rebound. 11-time All-Star, two Olympic gold medals, one of the 50 greatest players, apparently, in NBA history. But this man spoke colorfully. He spoke aggressively. He spoke loudly. He speaks loudly. He spoke all the time. To this day, Charles Barkley owns one of the most ironic monikers ever given to anybody, Sir Charles. He never claimed to be a role model. When I was a teenager, Nike launched a campaign with Charles Barkley. And the campaign, what you see in this ad and this campaign um, on, a, on a commercial was Charles Barkley's face really close. I never wanted to get that close to Charles Barkley. Really close. I was a teenager. It says, I am not a role model. And then you see him grabbing a rebound. He's like, I wreak havoc on the basketball court. But I am not, and it pans back, I am not a role model. Your parents are role models. And the truth is, is that Charles was right. He was definitely not a role model. But he wanted, most parents and most people go, no, you're just copping out because you want to act a certain way. But Charles was right. He wasn't a role model. Even if the idea of athletes being role models vanished for a time in public discourse, certainly not vanished from the scriptures. Role models are incredibly important in the scriptures, according to Jesus, according to Paul, according to Peter. Role models are vital. Examples to the flock are vital for us to model Christ, both for the church and for those who don't know Jesus yet, to see the beauty of Christ in people's lives, to see a church that is discipling one another and encouraged to be the light set on a hill. 1 Timothy 4, Paul said it this way to young elder Timothy. He said to him, set an example in speech and life and love and faith and purity. Set an example. Elders are for example Elders are for doctrine, and elders are for disciple-making. Let me pray. Father, I pray that it would be our aim as believers in Christ, all of us in this room, whether elder or not, I pray that it would be our desire through the power of the Spirit, by your grace, to model Christ to one another, to encourage each other and build each other up, that we might look more and more like Christ and Lord, I pray as we do that, as we mature, that like in Crete, that there would be more churches planted and the gospel going forth in areas that it's not. Lord, I pray that this church, I pray that you would protect this church from within and from without. I pray that you would protect us doctrinally. I pray that you would protect our lives 
I pray that you would grow us in godliness, that we might be a city set on a hill. In Jesus' name, amen.